Good morning, Missio. Today we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 through chapter 13, verse 10. And I'm reading out of the NIV version. Now I am ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not act in the same spirit and follow the same course? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there will be quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will do, we will not do anything wrong. Not that people will see that we have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong and our prayer is, your, is for your perfection. This is why I write these things when I am absent that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. Thanks, Jessica, for that reading. Um, 2 Corinthians 12 and 13. And as you'll notice, we're nearing the end of this letter that Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Um, we just have a few more verses left, and we'll be doing that together on the 13th of September, we'll be having our outdoor um, service. Um, so please sign up for that and we'll finish up 2 Corinthians, this letter. And next week, it's Labor Day, so we'll be having a holiday. So enjoy your time um, at home or camping or whatever you do um, for Labor Day. And we'll just be taking a week to rest. Um, so just wanted to remind you of those upcoming changes um, in the next couple of weeks. Today, though, we're going to tackle this kind of big section in 2 Corinthians, this letter that Paul is writing. And the question that I have for us as we begin is what happens when we break things? Specifically, what happens when we break things in relationships? 
How do we restore and renew? And that's what Paul is talking about today. And I'm just going to walk us through the section so we get an overview um, of this rather large um, chunk of text that we just heard. Um, At the beginning, we have chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. And Paul is telling them, these Corinthian church, that he is coming to visit them. And in this section, he's addressing that they expect to pay him when he comes. And so he reiterates right here in these verses the kind of relationship that he has with them. That he doesn't see his relationship with them as contractual. It's more familial, that he has this deep love for them. So he talks about the relationship between a parent and a child because that's the kind of relationship he sees himself having with them. In the message at the end, he says, I'd be most happy to empty my pockets, even mortgage my life for your good. That's not a contractual relationship. It's this deep love that he has for them. And so he wants to reiterate that as he's writing to them. And then he goes on in verses 19 to 21, and he says, like, with that kind of relationship, he has a goal to strengthen them. That the things that he says and he does has the goal of strengthening them. And part of that strengthening is to address the issues that are going on within the context of their community, which he then talks about in verses 20 and 21, which we're going to go back to In a second, part of that strengthening is addressing these issues that he's hearing about and that he sees. And then he starts out, chapter 13, 1 to 5, he reiterates that he's coming. And that when he comes, he's going to address what is going on in their midst. And he's warning them that he's not going to look over it. That he wants to address it. He wants them to address it, even prior to him coming. And then... From verses 5 to 10, he he encourages them, says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves. And then he tells us why. So that they can be caught or so that they can be punished? No. Because his heart is for them and he wants to restore them and build them up. So we see in this section, it's just one long stream of thought that he has in his letter. And he sees himself like family to them, and he wants to care for them and encourage them and strengthen them and restore them and build them up. And part of that is addressing the issues that are showing up in their community. And so we see this whole section and we get a sense of the heart of Paul towards these people and the goal that he has through the words that he's writing. And so let's go back to the issue or the issues that he is addressing. Chapter chapter 5, chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. This is the issues that he's addressing. I'm afraid that maybe when I come to you, you will be different from the way I want you to be and that I'll be different from the way you want me to be. I'm afraid that there might be fighting, obsession, losing your temper, competitive opposition, backstabbing, gossip, conceit, and disorderly conduct. 
I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may embarrass me in front of you. I might have to go into mourning over all the people who have sinned before and haven't changed their hearts and lives from what they used to practice. Moral corruption, sexual immorality, and doing whatever feels good. So here Paul names the issues that he's wanting to bring to their attention. What's been going on in the Corinthian church, he tells us, a way of life. There's some serious community problems. There's been class division. You can read this in 1 Corinthians. Class division and theological division and cultural division. And it's led to behaviors that have caused serious problems and a lack of concern for other members in the community. They've been fighting and losing their temper on each other and they have this competitive opposition and there's backstabbing and there's gossip and conceit and disorderly conduct. It doesn't sound very great. But I honestly feel like Paul could potentially write this letter to us too. The church in America where there's also theological division and cultural division and behaviors that cause problems and a lack of concern that we show to one another. So these things are not unique to the Corinthian church. They show up pretty predominantly in the church here too. And perhaps even in our church, that Paul would write, I'm afraid that these things are in your midst, Missio. The same words that we need to hear from him. He expresses that there's also moral corruption and sexual immorality and doing whatever feels good. And in the first letter, he shows us that there's a man living with his father's wife, for example. Or they're consistently having sex with prostitutes, which was really normal for the Greco-Roman culture at that time. And Paul's like, the body and the spirit are intertwined, which is what they had separated. And he's like, that's not appropriate outside of marriage just to go and have sex with prostitutes. And then he also describes in, verse, in Corinthians 1, 5 and 6, abusive and angry insulting that they do to one another. They're being abusive. And they're deceiving people out of money and they're outright stealing from each other. And the words that he uses describes people whose lives are characterized by this kind of way of life. It's not like a one-time thing, but the way that Paul uses those words in chapter 1 or 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 is indicative of people whose way of life is characterized by these things, that it's habitual. Which is why he says, if Christ is in you, you'll sort this out. Now sort it out. And it's important to note what's going on in Paul, that he's afraid. He's afraid that he's going to find these things and that it'll send him into mourning, that his heart will be grieved. Because his heart is for them and his heart is with them. And this week I was reading this with Haley in Lectio Divina and she said that's what stands out the most to me of this passage is like the clear 
like affect and heart that Paul has for the Corinthian church. And I was talking to my dad too about this because the part of Paul comes through more and more in this letter. And I haven't always really been that excited about Paul's letters, but my dad has been very excited about it. So I was like, Dad, I think you might have been right. Paul's Paul's kind of pastoral in his heart. And my dad, who's been teaching Corinthians for over the last 30 years, sometimes in Corinth, he said, whenever I read Paul... It reminds me of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then he said, And when I think about that, it connects me back to 1 Corinthians 4, where it says, For this reason I have sent you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Paul is talking about being connected to Jesus, and in being connected to Jesus, there's a way of life that shows up out of that relatedness to who Jesus is. In Galatians, he talks about his former way of life in Judaism, but now he's living this way of life in Jesus, this way of life in Christ. And the way of life that the Corinthians are living is grieving Paul. The way that it grieves a parent to see a child choosing a way of life that is harmful or hurtful to them or others. Or a way that you see that it's not embodying the truth of who your child is. That these actions are incongruent. And so again here in chapter 3, 13, Paul is pointing us back. Pointing them back to the way of life that is in Jesus. Which is what he's been doing throughout the whole letter. That they would know comfort in suffering and patient endurance. That they would understand forgiveness and security in Christ. That they would be okay with their own weakness and fragility. They, They would transfer trust to Jesus. That they would know about reconciliation and open heartedness. That their sincere love would show up practically in how they took care of each other. That they would stay rooted in Jesus and that they would receive grace. And power and weakness. And now in chapter 13, he says, examine your way of life. Test yourself. Why? So that they can be punished or looked down upon or held in contempt or banished? No, not at all. That's not Paul's heart for them. But he does want them to admit wrongdoing, and make amends. That's what he's driving at here. He wants them to admit wrongdoing and make amends. And you know what? That is pure gift. Monsieur, that is pure gift. It doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't always, we don't always have categories for it to be pure gift, but it is. 
And I would say that there is a community that knows that the best, and it is the recovery community. How much of a gift it is to admit wrongdoing and make amends. The recovery community knows that the deepest, I would say. I was at a training um, about recovery. It was a few years ago now. And um, the gentleman who was leading the training, he was a counselor, he was up front, and he was about 20 of us in the room, and he just said, has anybody had a relapse recently? This woman put up her hand, and she's like, yeah, I have. And he said, how recent? And she's like, a month ago. And he said, um, what's your drug of choice? And she's like, meth. Meth is my drug of choice. And he's like, great, come on up here. Like, we'll have a chit-chat. And she like went up there and she's like, I totally know what it was like that caused me to relapse. And he's like, great, let's have a little chit chat about it. And you know, she's volunteering, she knows it's a training. So she sits up there and the counselor just chats with her, you know, asks her some really deep inquiring questions in front of us. And you know, she kind of gets deeper and deeper into where she was at the time and the decisions that she'd been making and why she was making those decisions and finally, she recognized that um, it was, a, it was a, a period of time before that something had happened that reminded her of one of her children. And through this conversation with his counselor, she came to the realization that her relapse came from unresolved guilt related to one of her children. And that child had died and she wasn't there because of her choice to use. And she looked out at us, you know, she kind of came undone for a moment. And then she like looked out at us, like those of us that were in the room. And she said, dude, my unresolved guilt has the capacity to take me out. I've got some work to do. And we were all like, yes. Right, we may not choose to use a particular drug. Sometimes we work harder. Or we hide. Or we criticize others. Or we kind of sow seeds of self-hatred. Because unnamed and unresolved guilt is destructive. And the reason why is because the feeling or the awareness, or the reality, because guilt is not always a feeling. So the feeling, or the reality, or the awareness of guilt is often too much to bear. By either us, or the one that has been wronged. And we need the knowledge of wrongdoing, so we don't have to stay in that place, that place of guilt. Because we need to be free from that place. That place is destructive and harmful when it is unresolved. And it's destructive and harmful to us, but it's also destructive and harmful to others. Because often unresolved guilt leads us to shame. Where we believe that we haven't just done something wrong, but we are bad. And that shame shows up in us or the one that has been wronged. And so often we try to protect ourselves from those feelings of shame and we get defensive and we get angry. We live in denial or self-justification and that's what keeps on happening in the Corinthian church. 
And it happens in us. And Paul says, enough, enough. And so he's reminding them. And guilt reminds us that we do things that are not aligned, that we break things in relationship. And you know what? We're all going to do that. We're all going to do that because we're human. And so we're going to break things. We're going to do things that are not aligned with us or with our values, with our belief systems. And that's what Paul is pointing out in the Corinthian church. Which is why he's asking them to examine themselves and test themselves. Which is why that is so vital. Because our, our intentions and our actions and our values are often misaligned. And knowing when that happens allows us to admit our wrongdoing. Knowing when that happens allows us to admit our wrongdoing. And when we do, if the lights turn on, it frees us. And we say with our literal words what we did wrong. It can feel terrifying, but it's living true rather than living a lie. And living true is freedom. So it frees us. And it also values and validates the person that was affected by the wrongdoing. I see you. I feel you. I acknowledge you. I was wrong. And you had to bear the consequence of my wrongdoing. And it then creates space to make amends and reconciliation. And that happens with both words and actions. Apologies are words. I'm so sorry. Like, will you forgive me? But amends are more than words. Amends means that we are amending our behavior that we're not just saying that we're sorry, but that we're going to act differently moving forward. Or that we're going to take steps to correct a situation. And amends are actions that demonstrate a new way of life. Yes, I acknowledge that I was guilty. And now these amends are actions that demonstrate a new way of life, a new rhythm, new intention that is aligned and shows up in action and behavior. And we need to do this, again, because we're human and we're going to break things in relationship. We're going to break things. The places that we work and the families that we belong to and the systems and structures that we build. And so we need this to be our way of life in community. And that this is what Paul has been and is asking the Corinthian church to do, is to admit wrongdoing and make amends. And it's what he asks us to do. And to know that this is the way of life in Jesus. 
And I think there are a few things that stop us from doing this. I've talked about shame. But there's also some practical things that sometimes stop us from acknowledging where we've done wrong and making amends. And if maybe there's something you can think that you've done that broke relationship or had impact on others that was negative because of a choice that you made out of your own greed or pride or self-protection or comfort. And sometimes we do those things towards someone that may not want to hear from us. So we wouldn't be able to offer an apology. Or it would actually be hurtful or harmful to contact them. Or we can't anymore. Like the example of the woman that I told you about that her daughter was gone, died. And that's okay. It's okay. We can still acknowledge the wrongdoing. And then we can do what's called a living amends. Where you treat other people in your life the way you wish you had treated that person. So if you lied, you don't lie to people anymore. That's a living amends. If you stole something, you don't steal anymore. And maybe you pay back that money into a charity or something else. That's a living amends. You can treat the other people in your life the way that you wish you had treated that person. It's a new way of life. It's living amends. But there are those that you can reach out to. The community may validate it. It's safe to do so. It's good and whole to verbally see somebody face to face and acknowledge wrongdoing. But in doing that, we have to contend with the fact that when we hurt people, there's a real possibility that when we reach towards them, it doesn't go well. Because we're not in control of other people's responses whether they forgive or hold on to negative feelings and resentments is not within our control. But that's not our motivation in acknowledging wrongdoing and making amends. We offer amends and admit wrongdoing because we want to be accountable for our own actions and because it's an invitation to freedom it's what the gospel is, monsieur. And this is the way of life. It's the way of life for us. It's the way of life for us as Jesus people. It's the way of life that Paul keeps pointing the Corinthian church back into. The way of life that is the way of freedom. and The freedom of Christ. The freedom in Christ. And in chapter 13, he gives us another way of life tool that we can apply that should just be part of who we are as a community. That we admit wrongdoing and we seek to make amends. Because, Monsieur, grace is sufficient even in the failure and in the midst of our wrongdoing. And Jesus forgives and embraces us in love. It's the heart that Paul had for the Corinthian church, wants to embrace them 
forgive and embrace in love. Have them forgive and embrace each other in love, restoration and reconciliation. And Jesus forgives us and embraces us in love and that is always guaranteed. It may not be guaranteed with other people, but that is always guaranteed in Christ. Forgiveness and embrace in love. And he asks us in moments when people admit their wrongdoing that we would forgive and embrace in love and learn to trust again through those practices of amends. But he also asks us to be the kind of people that are willing to ask for forgiveness. To ask for forgiveness. And to be forgiven. And to move in the process of reconciliation as hard as that is. And it's this table, Monsieur, that gives us the freedom to do this. This table that Jesus invites us to every week. A table that is an expression of forgiveness. An expression of being loved unconditionally. An expression where we can come and bring, admit our wrongdoing. And so wherever you are, if you have the elements with you, like take them with me. Know that Christ invites us to a way of life. A way of life that is ultimately freedom. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for Paul's letter to the Corinthian church and just how deeply he loved them. That they were like family to him. And that in pointing out particular kinds of things, his desire was that they would be restored. And I know, Father, that that's your desire for us too, that we would constantly be restored, that we wouldn't live trapped in places of guilt, that we wouldn't um, create divisions between us through our wrongdoing, but instead we'd have the humility to admit our wrongdoing and make amends. And that because of that, we would look peculiar as a community because we're brave and courageous to name these things because at the end of the day, we know we're held and loved by you. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would walk us into this way of life. That it's not going to happen overnight, but that we would live into the rhythms and practices that that declare our freedom. Declare our freedom to each other and declare our freedom to this city. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.